Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly sunny skies today on the first full day of fall. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we begin a series of conversations with CEOs about diversity and inclusion. From Atlanta-based Newell Brands, CEO Ravi Salagram joins me. CEOs today need to also be change agents. I think consumers want companies and brands to do societal good. Today they say, hey, brands are trusted, but you also have to do something that helps the good of society. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. But first, reports are President Donald Trump is coming to Georgia this Friday. That's according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, Closer Look reached out to the White House for more details. But as of their time, we have not received a response. Now, in other news, a third person has died from COVID-19 at the Stewart Detention Center in South Georgia. Officials say 61-year-old Cipriano Chavez Alvarez had been hospitalized since mid-August in Columbus. And we do know that more than 330 detainees have tested positive for COVID-19 at the detention center. And we also know that according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, there's been 307,339 confirmed cases here in the state. That's since March. And 27,394 have been hospitalized. And of those, 5,005 were ICU admissions. 6,604 Georgians have reportedly died due to the coronavirus. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. These words are everywhere. There are signs in stores. There are NBA teams have the words on their jerseys. Employees are wearing T-shirts, and the words are painted in massive letters on crosswalks, sidewalks, and on Atlanta's Beltline. The words are Black Lives Matter. Since the killing of George Floyd by a white police officer in Minneapolis, it has started a wave this summer of protests and calls for social justice. Then add in the video footage of Ahmaud Arbery's shooting death. Add in the police killing of Breonna Taylor and the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks right here in Atlanta. And all of these calling for police reform, or just overall addressing racism and other social justice issues. And there's something else. Corporations are committing to social justice initiatives, pledging more diversity and inclusion. But what does that really mean? What does it mean for a corporation to tackle these issues? Well, today we begin a series of conversations with presidents and CEOs of corporations, of big businesses. And we're starting with Ravi Salagram. He's the CEO of Atlanta-based Newell Brands. You're probably familiar with them. The consumer goods company, well, they manufacture a lot. A lot of products we're all familiar with. For example, Papermate, Sharpie, Sunbeam, and yes, Mr. Coffee. 
Now, Robbie Salagram was named president and chief executive officer just last year, but he has an extensive background in consumer brands. And now we welcome him to the program as we kick off this series. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted and honored to be here with you. Well, thank you. Let's begin here. Uh, how do you define diversity and inclusion? Yeah, to me, Rose, the uh, it's uh, to me there's really three aspects. Mm-hmm. There's diversity, there's inclusion, and belonging. And diversity and inclusion are just the means to the end of belonging. A feeling I want to create a few different things in our work environment. A feeling where everyone, regardless of color, race, religion, ethnicity, um, to really feel that they can bring their whole selves to work. I don't want people to have to lead double lives. Mm -hmm. I want them to be themselves. Because when you are yourself, the best side of you comes out. And diversity and inclusion, really, when you have diverse thoughts, when you have thought leadership, innovation starts coming through. It's so important in consumer products. But for me, the other important thing, especially for black employees, Hispanic employees, people of color, any people who are different from the quote unquote norm is that they need to have a level playing field. Mm -hmm. It's not about partiality or favoritism. It is about a level playing field that the opportunities for them are the same, that they can thrive. So I have created an advisory group for myself, Mm -hmm. which I call Black Lives Thrive. And at Newell, we may not be able to change the world, but we can certainly change the world of Newell and, and make it a better place. So when the your very poignant words came back, ringing in the memories of George Floyd, uh, a few days after that, I wrote a note to my employees called Embracing Humanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you've seen that note, and if not, I'll send it to you. But it was for me, it just poured out of my heart because what's it is really... For me, I love America, mm-hmm. and America has been very kind. I've been three times public company CEO, and for me, the American dream is alive and well. But the American dream can't just be for a select few. It has to be available for all, and there are some systemic barriers for certain sects, so we've got to remove that. And actually, we're going to play a clip from that because you narrated that as well. We're going to play a clip from that in just a moment. But I want to go back to something that you just talked about because you said this is what I want. This is what we want the company to represent. So let me ask you this. How do you ensure that that philosophy from you being at the top filters down to all the different levels? Because you can have that ideology, but maybe you don't have a director or manager or maybe you have a director or manager who may not understand it. So how do you get that message then to the next level of executives or directors or managers? Rose, that's a great question because I'm just an orchestra conductor. And for me, you need people who play the music. And so the leadership team is so critical. I have changed out our leadership team, many new people, and I've brought in people who have the number one unifying factor. They're all different, mm-hmm. but they're number one unifying factor is that their value is that people come first. It's a people first culture. And when you have a people first culture, my team, whether it's the veterans who were there before, the new ones that are brought about, all unify in this view. So I I don't have to preach to the converted. They believe in it like I do. The other thing was 
when I first started, for me, gender diversity is very important. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went about changing my leadership team. And four out of my eight business unit heads, the business unit CEOs, are now women. So now that we've got that, I'm tackling the whole issue of blacks and Hispanics and people of color. How do we equalize things that there is a level playing field? But we're the way we're cascading this communication, but we're appealing to the heart. We're appealing to the head. We're saying, look, on one hand, diversity and inclusion is good business mm -hmm. because it drives innovation. But then there is a moral imperative of really creating a level playing field. And isn't it, if you create a unified team, uh, it really creates a lot of, that becomes our competitive advantage. And one of the things about COVID, despite all the issues we've had, it has unified our workforce. Hey, are there people at the fringes who will object to some of this? Yes. Mm -hmm. But if they see your intentions are pure, and if they see that you're trying to unify, and that you're not trying to create favoritism, but what you're trying to do is give opportunity to all, that people rise to their full potential. Mm. And now we're going to get to the part of this conversation where we talk about how you respond to what's taking place in our nation. So I want to play the beginning of the narrated address that you gave to the Newell Brands organization. Take a listen. Dear Team Newell, we're going through a tumultuous period and a traumatic time when now more than ever, it is so important for us to embrace our humanity. First COVID-19 and a spring for some spent sheltering at home. Yes, when we were beginning to see a faint light at the end of the Corona tunnel, the nation looked in horror at the brutal killing of George Floyd, a black man in Minneapolis while in police custody. Only months earlier, Ahmed Arbery was shot and killed in Georgia while jogging. And Breonna Taylor, an EMT, was shot and killed in her own home in the middle of the night. The list sadly goes on. Eric Garner in New York, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Trayvon Martin in Florida. Why does history keep repeating itself? Why do pleas of I can't breathe keep echoing? Why has so little changed? What prompted you to record this message? Because you wrote it first, it just poured out of you? Yeah, it had been building up, Rose. Mm -hmm. And that night, it was about three or four days after the incident. It had been welling up in me. And I, you know, CEOs are taught, don't talk about politics, don't talk about religion, focus on business. But I think, look, today it's about stakeholder value. And I think we've got to, as CEOs, do something. And so there was just this force inside me and I started writing. It was at about 10 o'clock and I still, while uh, I, I started writing on a uh, pad and uh, with my uh, Sharpie gel pen and started putting it down and the words just flowed. Hmm. And then I got my daughter to look at it and uh, then my head of communications and uh, with some edits. And then I read it to our, affinity group, our ERG, and said, hey, does this, this just is spontaneous. Is it okay? And they said, sure. And they said, record it. I think consumers want companies and brands to do societal good, which is different from the 50s and the 60s. Mm -hmm. Today, they say, hey, brands are trusted, but you also have to do something that helps uh, the good of society. 
And so it just came out and, and I truly believe in it. And the important thing is our teams believe in it. I've had many, many letters from employees and the employee base says, hey, we're with you mm-hmm. and uh, we want to support you. And we've started dialogue in various uh, businesses between black, white, brown employees to say, how do we make Newell a better place to work? How can we bring our whole selves to work? So we're creating these dialogues. So we're doing a number of initiatives. So we've got five pillars, Rose, Mm -hmm. uh, that I can talk about unless you want to clarify anything. No, we can get to those in a second, but I do want to, before we get to those, I want to get your thoughts on this because I was reading a piece in the Harvard Business Review earlier from earlier this summer where it talked about, and I'm going to quote them here, consumers and employees are now looking for more than corporate social responsibility. They're looking for what the author calls corporate social justice. So if that is the trend, as you say, that's the shift from the 50s and 60s, but you also, you're the CEO, you, you have a responsibility to... Yes, your employees, but also to your investors and to your board. So when someone says, okay, that's great, CEO, Soligram, but don't forget, we do have some profits here that we want to see increased. What's your response to them? So I think, Rose, that's a great question. I don't think that shareholder value and stakeholder value are mutually exclusive. Shareholder value is driven when employees band together to drive delight customers and consumers and that's how your revenues go up and profits go up when you have employees being super productive you don't need to keep adding people to do the same work because they're doubly productive so to me this is very important because happy employees means happy consumers because happy employees create great new products, great new services, mm-hmm. great experiences for consumers. And that only results in shareholder value. So if you don't believe in that, and if you think they're two separate things, then you won't win. You've got to believe that employees are your greatest asset who will move the needle. Mm-hmm. But Rose, in my last two assignments, and I think the same will happen, I'm hoping will here, uh, happen here, is we've driven tremendous shareholder value. But that's always come from a people-first mentality. The voice you hear is Ravi Salagram. He's the CEO of Atlanta-based Newell Brands. And he kicks off our series of conversations with corporate presidents and CEOs as we talk about what does it really mean for a corporation to tackle these issues when it comes to social justice. So let me ask you this. You talked about implementing these five pillars, these five tentacles. Let's go over some of them. Give me two that you feel are crucial. So I think the work environment, which we already talked about, mm-hmm. where, be, where you foster authentic self-expression, you create an environment of mutual respect and understanding. The second, which is extremely important, Rose, is unconscious bias, addressing unconscious bias, where you dispel misconceptions and misperceptions. You try to reduce and eliminate stereotypes. And This comes about with a lot of training, systematic training, so that people don't have, because conditioning and how we grow up creates a lot of things in your head. Mm -hmm. And you look at things from a certain lens and judge people based on your lens, whereas another person looking at a different lens may come to a different view. So people say that even when two people are communicating in the same language, 
only 25% is actually understood or internalized the way it was meant to be. So it's, so you've got to really work on that. So that to me is very important. The third is really making sure there's equity. Mm-hmm. There's that your pay parity, that your promotional opportunities, that you have good representation, etc. And the final thing is in terms of representation, we're creating a very systematic drive. We just our board appointed uh, a black director, uh, Sir Jay Johnson, who's an amazing star, went to Morehouse College here and did his MBA at Harvard. He's a CFO, brilliant financial mind. So we will learn from him. So and we're doing this now at different levels. Uh, we're, we're beginning a systematic thing. Best athletes or black, Hispanic, just get that diversity and representation. So let me ask you this then, and then you just you're just implementing these. So is there a assessment tool that you can use to gauge the effectiveness of this? Um, someone listening may say, well, okay, you've you, you've done the hiring, but how do you ensure that that culture that you so brilliantly and wonderfully expressed coming into this segment that you you want to have at Newell Brands? So how do you assess that that it's going to be working? So we're about to partner with an external firm, Rose, to do a diagnostic and will uh, to benchmark attitudes, to look at behaviors, to see check the temperature of the organization. And we also do engagement surveys with employees. So this is going to be a standard feature going forward. So I look at this as a marathon journey. And by the way, on the hiring, we've just got started. We're just scratching the surface. There's a lot of work to be done. By no means have we <clears throat> solved our representation problem. But the journey has begun and it'll be a marathon and we'll keep holding ourselves accountable by measuring the results and saying, are we making good progress? What is your advice to, whether it's an executive or a director or a manager or someone listening that says, I want to have that type of culture. I want to have that philosophy. Yeah, I think it's important that voices get heard. It's the job of leadership to create the environment where voices can be heard, where people can talk without fear. That is the job of management. Uh, But I think like anything in this world, how you say things, how persuasive you are, uh, you can be uh, defiant, uh, you can be aggressive, or you can be persuasive. So I think persuading and trying to reason, uh, trying to appeal to the heart, appealing to the head, and <clears throat> not giving up, being tenacious, and, and, and making sure that there is a refrain. So I come originally from a country, India Rose, mm-hmm. where Mahatma Gandhi got independence through nonviolence and against a more powerful country at that time. But by rallying people through nonviolent means, but persuading the British, that India had to be freed. So I think there is, and Martin Luther King was inspired a lot by Gandhi. And I think that is the thing that conversations have to go on. But I think leaders at the top cannot shirk their responsibility of creating the environment where voices can be heard. We've got to make sure these voices can be heard. And you know, this advisory group I've created for myself, is uh, they're at different levels. Mm-hmm. I want to hear their stories. And I want to be closer to the ground. I want to foster an environment where I understand the lives that they are leading and what they're going through. One of my managers 
uh, told me that he had been pulled over 25 times for no reason, mm. just because he's black. That is a gut-wrenching story. And you say, oh my God, when you hear these stories or uh, another manager told me he lives in a nice neighborhood and neighbors stopped him to say, show me your driver's license to see, to tell me, to show me that you actually live here. That's so demeaning. How can we let that happen? So I think it is important that these stories are told and stories bring to life the pain that people are going through. As the president and CEO of Newell Brands, would you also be okay if you had to sever ties with another organization or a partnership with another business that you felt was not embracing the philosophy that you've been talking about? Well, I think uh, so it's situational and it depends on the specifics Mm -hmm. of uh, that. My priority first is we've got to get our own home in order and before we preach to others because it's not like we're perfect. Mm -hmm. So first priority, make sure that we actually uh, focus on it. But clearly, if uh, there are organizations that are egregious, that are doing things that... uh, um, are truly harming society or don't believe in these principles, of course you have to look at that and say, because you know, uh, uh, who you ally with, how you partner with people. But there's always two sides to a coin. You need to make sure it's deliberate, it's thoughtful, and that you have all uh, the data. But having said that, to me, I want to make sure that Newell is a better place for our employees. And finally, as we wrap up, how do you assess your leadership style? Yeah, for me, uh, Rose, I, um, uh, to me, at, it, it's really important that, uh, look, Newell Brands was the result of uh, Newell Rubbermaid acquiring Jarden, mm-hmm. and we had some integration challenges, et cetera. So we're in the midst of a turnaround. Mm-hmm. And so when I came in, we had some certain challenges with employee engagement. I think those are behind us. Uh, we've got a very motivated team. For me, the most important thing is understanding and recognizing as CEO that it's not about me, Rose. I am just, as I said, an orchestra conductor. It's really about our people. It is about empowering them. It is about helping them reach for the stars and achieving things they never thought possible. And so I'm just an enabler. And if I start getting a swollen head or a big, I mean, I just have a big body, but I don't want to get a big head. And uh, to say, hey, uh, it's about you. And I'm just a servant leader. I'm in their service. Mm -hmm. And I fervently believe that. And the assessment is, I think, as our results climb, because it's because of our people. But what gratifies me the most is when people employees send me notes and I get a lot of communication from CEO. They're not afraid of writing to me. In fact, they write to me and say, please keep this confidential. And <laughs> it is uh, humorous that they would say the, to the CEO, but that shows that connection I've created, mm-hmm. which I'm so honored and grateful for because they think of me as one of them. And that to me is the greatest compliment for a leader is when you connected with your people and mobilize them and galvanize them for greater good. 
Ravi Salagram is the CEO of Atlanta-based Newell Brands. He's also the president, and he jumpstarts our conversations, our series of conversations with corporate presidents and CEOs as they talk about tackling social justice issues. Mr. Salagram, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you so much, Rose. It is a pleasure and honor. Onwards and upwards. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Paycheck Protection Loans Program, or PPP, yes, it did help some small businesses stay afloat for about six months during this pandemic. According to the Small Business Association, they approved 5.2 million loans, totaling $659 billion, with the B, dollars. However, there was criticism of the program. First of all, Questions about who actually received the loans in terms of equity. And this, a U.S. House subcommittee report, revealed a lack of oversight from the federal government, which may have led to, quote, hold on to this fraud, waste, and abuse. The program also ended on August 8th, and the pandemic and many stay-at-home restrictions were continuing, obviously. What does this mean now going forward, and what can small business owners do to stay afloat? Well, joining me now to talk about all this is Peter Roberts, Professor of Organization and Management at Emory University's Guazetta Business School. Professor Roberts, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, too. The PPP, the Paycheck Protection Loan, sound like a great way to help small businesses during the pandemic. Let's begin here with your reflection. What should have happened in terms of the plan? A lot of people say the way they rolled out the plan was problematic to begin with. Let me get your assessment. Yeah, I think maybe even one step backwards about sort of the definition of sort of what it means to be small and why you want to support small. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a lot of these conversations kind of teetering on the top end of, you know, is Ruth Chris small? A uh, bigger issue is there's an awful lot of very, very small businesses that contribute to neighborhood vitality, that contribute to sort of the economic well-being of neighborhoods that were in a weird way too small to be considered small and therefore completely missed by the program. Well, and we understand, too, that the Los Angeles Lakers and I think Shake Shack and, and not picking on them, but they were the ones that were singled out because folks said exactly what you said. They're not small business. The Los Angeles Lakers are not a small business operation. Yeah. So let's give our listeners a little bit of positive. So what did work with this program? Um, so the nice thing is, if you sort of think about that cascade down from the not really small all the way down a little, it did find a way to get to sort of the base of the pyramid where sort of individually it's sort of the ones and twos and three people that are employed, you know, collectively you got to kind of con- continue that livelihood. So it got there. Um, so I think that's a positive. The work that the small business association does at the small end of the distribution is critical work. You have to make sure that we sort of grow into the next generation. And the goal was to ensure that these small business owners and their businesses 
could weather the storm, so to speak, and not mm-hmm. have to leave their communities or not have to shut. We had so many conversations with folks about how they were trying to make it during this time. But that was the goal. The goal was let's help these small businesses that are really vital to the community so they can stay afloat. That was the goal, right? Yeah, that's right. If you think about that idea, it's sort of a, a stimulus to keep these very, very important small businesses going. And it's also a stimulus to make sure the people that work for them. So the idea that if you keep people on payroll, right, then the shock, mm-hmm. the local shocks associated with these small businesses going under is, is not quite as strong. So um, so that idea of sort of, you know, keeping that sort of often invisible layer of vibrancy. And the reason we get so mad at the Lakers story is that most of us have the sort of underlying belief that says the Lakers should have been able to sort of take care of themselves and keep people on payroll by themselves. Mm-hmm. But that's a lot, lot different than your local coffee shop, your local diner, your local you know, law firm, accounting firm, et cetera. So that's sort of that twin notion of kind of keeping businesses going so that people can keep livelihoods going. And we should note before we continue that the Los Angeles Lakers, Shake Shack <laughs> and Ruth Chris, I do believe they all either sent it back or declined right, right. to accept it. Now, yeah. I want to play a clip for you from a conversation I had back in May of this year with Yasmin Ferrari. She's a senior policy counsel for the Center for Responsible Lending. Basically, businesses that are more resourced were advantaged by the structure of the program in lots of ways. So larger payrolls, having existing relationships with financial institutions and commercial lenders. All of these are huge advantages. So there are a number of ways in which the program is structurally disadvantaged for the smallest of small businesses. She says something very interesting. They have existing relationships with lenders Mm -hmm. and with banks. And when we talk about small businesses, Professor Roberts, often that relationship is maybe not as strong as what she talked about. That was an issue as well. Yeah. And that's, that's what got lost. People want to look for when they look at things that sort of end up being biased against certain people. You want to kind of think, oh, it's the decision maker at the desk and it's not the inability to get to the desk. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a lot of these things, when you really, really want to go to the small end of small and make sure that these sort of these local pockets of vibrancy are supported, you have to kind of understand kind of where they are and their ability. Uh, I got to get myself to a lender. The lender's got to have a relationship with the SBA. And when that sort of time-based process kind of kicks in. I just don't get there well enough or fast enough. And and that's, I mean, when you start thinking about what do you want to do about this moving forward, I think it's extremely important you sort of tackle that issue is that we don't really know how to find and how to support these folks that are not yet large enough or not yet connected enough. So the next time something like this happens, you know, we're in trouble again. You know, often we talk about, because I've had these conversations, we talk about the underbanked and unbanked in terms of households. Often we don't hear about the unbank or underbank as it relates to small businesses. That's a reality. Oh, absolutely. I think in a lot of cases, when we look at neighborhoods, we have this idea that we're, I mean, it's not like we know enough, but we know a lot more about the residential side of things as opposed to the commercial side of things. So a lot of our work, you know, relates to race, you know, majority black neighborhoods versus majority white neighborhoods, right? And there's an awful lot when people talk about things like residential equity and what happens on the home side, but there's just a massive deficit in these very small but established businesses, majority black neighborhoods. And And the fact that we don't know how to go from zero to 30 means that we're going to have a permanent problem moving forward. Well, that leads me to this. There was a report from the Atlanta Business Chronicle that detailed this in the Atlanta area. Mm -hmm. Look, there are more than 18,000 businesses in Georgia that were approved for the PPP loans, which was about per, I think, business was right around $150,000 or more. Mm -hmm. But it also revealed that most of that funding was concentrated in, quote, wealthier zip codes. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? 
Well, it goes back to the larger and established, right? Is that, you know, these places, if you sort of think about how a program like this works and how an SBA works, it goes through a network of lenders, it, you know, it works well with folks that are established enough. Um, you know, Metro Atlanta, you know, it, 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 you don't have to look very closely to sort of see that there is a black, white slash rich, poor gap. And, you know, the, the business as normal in certain of these areas, you can mobilize quickly, get through your relationship partners, get the support you need if you live in one kind of zip code. But if we've never bothered to sort of think about the legitimacy and credibility importance, right, of this cadre of businesses in poorer and in Atlanta's case, majority black neighborhoods, then what you have is you have folks that basically are just too far away from the starting point of programs. Um, so we just don't know how to reach them. And it's, 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 it accumulates and it's terrible. It's terrible. Do you think through your lens and as someone who obviously is an expert and analyst in this area, would have been better to disperse this money on the state level and then the state could have dispersed it or somehow worked with those banks? For example, here in the Atlanta area, we know about the history and the importance of Citizens Trust Bank. They're a small bank in themselves and they have a unique set of issues that maybe another big financial giant won't have to deal with. So would it might have been easier to work directly with those banks who are in the communities yeah. that work with these minority owned small businesses? Yeah, and I think I would even take that one step further and maybe step outside your comfort zone and say uh, there are other organizations that can help mediate and get access. And can you do it in different kinds of ways? I mean, the, the point of the PPP was to sort of keep livelihood and keep employment going. And if we have a, a different kind of economics in different neighborhoods, and especially now with the benefit of time and realizing how much money we wasted at the top end of the distribution, we have had three, four months to sit down and say, how do we find the folks that weren't supported in the places that weren't supported? Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure that we get some sort of small business stimulus in those areas? So like the micro business associations, the start me's, the village capital funds, the AWBIs, mm -hmm. these are the kind of things in Atlanta that sort of says, can we convene y'all and say, what can we do to make sure that this kind of stimulus that has the intent of keeping people working and keeping people earning money, how do we get it to the folks that you work with? And so I think that kind of creativity, I'm, I'm not optimistic, mm -hmm. but I think that's the sort of thing you need to do at the next layer. You don't want to obviously say, well, what happens next time? Hopefully we won't enter another mm -hmm. pandemic, but what other lessons learned here? And I'm going to take this in a different angle for small business owners who may be underbanked or unbanked at this time? Mm -hmm. um, I think, I mean, I've been thinking a fair bit about this and there's the, what can they do? And um, when you, when you identify the problem is with the systems and the structures, there has to be like a, what can we do so that they can do? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The one thing that, that I found troubling is we were looking at data from the SBA lending from the 2010 to 17. So look past previous meltdown and say, and the ratio of kind of what the SBA did in the majority black, majority white neighborhoods, the ratios were exactly the same, right, over the 2010 to 17 period as they were during PPP. And that sort of suggests to you that it's not just a now you know, problem with the quick fist, it's mm -hmm. the problem with the structure. And, and so I think what we need to do is we need to find a version of the SBA. We, we gathered a bunch of micro business support organizations and said our challenge is we work with things that are too small to be small. Mm -hmm. Right. So the kind of organizations that we're talking about that work in neighborhoods up against someone who employs 500 people, they're just, mm -hmm. you know, the Australians used to just chalk and cheese, right? That, those are two very, very different things. So we need to find a way to put resources, right, kind of into neighborhoods so that historically marginalized folks have a chance to grab them and build businesses. Uh, and I'm actually quite confident that says mm -hmm. if you can get them from that chasm from being informal to growing to that point when you make sense to the SBA, 
most models, right, that that look at like when you come to the front door, mm -hmm. there's no, there's not as much overt discrimination mm -hmm. in this process as there is systemic and structural discrimination. So I think we, we've got to kind of go a we and they. Well, you and I both know when it comes to fixing a system that has yes. systemic issues, as they say, that ain't easy. No, a, and when you add the fact that they're small, right, it's so very, very hard to get people with this discipline to say like a thousand small things, mm -hmm. right, have a huge impact. When you focus on the one small thing, why do we care so much? One employee, two employees, you know, we're talking about a big problem, you know, here. So having that discipline to go and say, like, it's almost like neighborhoods need drip irrigation, right? You need to kind of go in and say, we have to kind of find a way to get some of these things up and growing so collectively they contribute. Um, but uh, yeah, there's not a lot of discipline to go long-term working with small things. Well, looking at the state of our economy right now and the fiscal health of the economy right now, which is really an unknown moving into the last quarter of this year, how optimistic are you that there will be a rebound for the small business and what needs to happen, though, yeah. moving into so 2021? I, the, I, have, I have an, an infinite faith in the entrepreneur. Like, I really do. The Start Me program that we run, that the amount of, of kind of like energy that is bubbling up below the surface and that's sort of a persistent positive. I think that the challenge, I think some of the stuff moving forward is I don't believe that enough people are kind of looking at the sort of the double, triple tsunami. I mean, NPR had data this morning, mm -hmm. you know, come out when they basically talk about sort of black and brown folks, you know, being disproportionately hit. Well, well we know where they live, mm -hmm. right? And now you're sort of doubly disproportionate. And now in the places that you live where you need that local stimulus, because then, you know, individuals are going to be carrying fewer resources in. We see right now, I mean, the, the construct of, of being shut out of something like $14 billion, mm -hmm. right, with majority black zip codes, I mean, that's, that's a huge amount of stimulus that, that wasn't there. So I, I, I am not, I am, is the right word? can you be hopeful but not optimistic? Yes, you can. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful that the severity of the problem, if we can have more conversations like this, that will say that the only good thing about looking at garish numbers, like going, holy smokes, like you didn't get $3 billion is it sort of opens up the policy sphere that says, how do I get the $3 billion into those neighborhoods? Mm -hmm. And I think if we have that sort of thing where people start getting creative in terms of what sort of organizational networks and how do you disperse and how do you make these funds available? Um, I'm hoping that the fact that, you know, as we're talking about large, large sums of money, that there might be some sort of creative policy that says we have got to work right on these 460 zip codes because there's a lot of people live there, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people kind of looking for looking for opportunities and looking for something positive. Um, entrepreneurs can deliver it, but you know they need some form of stimulus. And in terms of specific industries, Professor Roberts, what industries concern you the most moving forward, and will they be able to rebound? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of look at, and again, I am biased through the lens of our Start Me program that we're running in three different neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, the you know, Brian talks about sort of the makers and the bakers. So I think there's there's food services. There's enough disruption, right, in food services with restaurants. You say there are going to be opportunities for people to not only feed folks, but also make a living feeding folks. You know, can we be creative enough to allow, for example, like home-based restaurants and home-based? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic there. That's also one of those things that's sort of available and accessible to the micro-entrepreneur. Um, but if we look at all sort of these these things that have been displaced, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, right now, and uh, you know, having a you know, chat with folks over in the mayor's office, so when you think about sort of our black and brown residents, like what jobs were they dislocated from, and then what's sort of the the most facile path sort of through entrepreneurship. So definitely on the services side, um, 
And I also think if you sort of think about what else goes on in these neighborhoods, you know, folks that are sort of genuinely interested in tailoring services to local mm -hmm. populations. Um, and so I think it leans services, it leans things, again, that people in the world of economic development tend not to look at. You know, I don't really care about you from a development perspective unless mm -hmm. I see you as a shake shack, you know, down right. the road where like multi-unit across country, but there's nothing wrong with having kind of a couple of barbecue shops, mm -hmm. um, community cafe up the road. There should be 10 of those, you know, in my neighborhood yeah. here. Um, and, and I think those are the kind of things where the entrepreneur can definitely meet you halfway. It says, I got the skills, I have the aptitude, I have the, you know, the risk orientation, but what I need is I need someone who understands where I am, right, and where I want to go. And finally, has this pandemic forced you all with your Start Me program to change or alter or add yeah. or implement any new initiatives or resources yeah. moving forward? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely, because it's that movement of saying, like, you, you you certainly want to be sort of safe and careful with the people that you look to support. So the idea, that, you know, there's that when you have an accelerator program, they're getting together every Wednesday night and kind of working shoulder to shoulder. So that has to kind of switch to virtual. Um, so I think some of that's going. You mentioned before, like, these importance of relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a, belie a, a firm believer that it's sort of being shut out of those things. How do we make sure that the mentors that are so critical manage to establish these sort of relationships that they would have got face to face when it's you know, through a zoom link um, so the team's working really really hard uh, to make sure that the entrepreneurs kind of benefit from the collective energy and the mentors are there forming relationships because i mean that has you know the, it's it's like this weird notion of you know it's like the you know the, the three heads of the apocalypse mm -hmm. right now there's just so much worrying and so much hunkering down and i think it's isolation that's harmed a lot of these folks you know kind of moving forward and COVID's not going to help. Mm, so that's for sure. Not courage. Peter Roberts is a professor of organization and management at Emory University's Guazetta Business School. Professor Roberts, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A nonpartisan event to help encourage voter registration takes place this coming Saturday. It's called A Night of Good Trouble, and it's actually in partnership with the Atlanta Film Festival because the documentary of the same name is about civil rights giant and longtime Georgia Congressman John Lewis. Now, in the many remembrances and tributes to Lewis, a lot of folks shared how Lewis was an inspiration. And that includes my next guest. Now, we're used to seeing Christine Adams on the TV series Black Lightning, which is filmed right here in Atlanta. Jeff. I'm an addict. I never truly knew all those years what it was like for you. Being black lightning, the weight of the world on your shoulders, knowing you could fix it. I understand that, Laura. Well, Christine Adams is using time away from the set of Black Lightning to spearhead a voter registration initiative. And when we spoke, she talked about how the late Congressman John Lewis was such an inspiration. Christine Adams, welcome. Thank you so much, Rose. It's such an honor to be here. You know, I'm a huge fan and I'm actually going to get kudos points from my 14 year old daughter who said, I quote, this is the biggest thing you've ever done. <laughs> and, you know, I've <laughs> I've hugged Batman and James Bond. So I would take that as a compliment, Rose. You're big TV star, film star, but this is the coolest thing nope, you've done. This is it. Closer look with Rose Scott. She she actually she actually dropped her her cutlery mid dinner and uh, 
and gave me two high fives. So, <laughs> you know what? I, I didn't think I was big with 14 year olds, but I'll take oh. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's begin yeah. here. Well, first, let's get a little update. Obviously, we were going to talk about the late Congressman John Lewis, but for the fans of Black yeah. Lightning, they want to know. Y'all going to be coming yes. back right now. You're, are you filming? Yeah. We're in this pandemic, so folks want to know. Yeah, well, I'm happy to report that we are going back to work. Um, within the next month or so is what I've been told. Um, I know, obviously, all the protocols will be changing and they have to put all that into place. And it's going to take a little while. But, mm-hmm. you know, we've got some productions down here already up and running. So I'm confident um, that, you know, we'll be back on the air. I'm hearing January 2021. So not too much longer to wait, you guys. Wow. <laughs> and a big fan of Black Lightning. Uh, Christine, let's talk yeah. about this night of good trouble. But let's begin with your thoughts and reflections on Congressman John Lewis um, and what he meant to you. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Rose, I don't have to tell anybody in Atlanta about the significance of John Lewis. You know, he was my congressman here in the this district and also a big fan of Black Lightning, came to the set several times. And in his passing, it's really allowed us to focus on what his his mission and his mandate was. And as you know, this is a man that got up every single day and and walked the walk and and really believed in us, uh, believed in humanity, believed in our potential. And uh, you know, honestly, I just I don't want to let him down. <laughs> that, so so that's why uh, we put together this this event to, to really honor his legacy and to amplify his his message and just remind people what we need to do. You told me in a previous conversation you were so excited because you were just you are now also a US citizen. That's correct, Rose. And I just became an American citizen in November last year. Wow. What was that moment yeah. like for you? You know, it was um emotional I mean it really is emotional I've been in America for 17 years I lived on the west coast for 14 years moved to Atlanta three years ago um I really do love Atlanta I think it's such a special place um I think it's so unique in the sort of landscape of America I think it's so rich in history culture arts I'm not surprised that the entire filming community is is coming here at all um, so I just felt as a, as a new resident and, you know, my kids were born in this country. I felt like it was important for me to become a citizen and participate in the, in the process of, you know, voting and, and, and democracy. So I, that was kind of what drove that, but it was very emotional when you're in a room with people from 150 different countries, mm. um, and they are all there because they believe in something and they believe in the possibility that is so emotional and so powerful. And, you know, I think with everything that's going on, just to kind of bring it back to John Lewis again, I, you know, I do sort of believe in the potential and the power of us as individual people and, and what we can do. And so I felt like, you know, my one vote was just as important as, as anyone else's. So. Is that also the, at the core of why you wanted to be involved in getting people registered to vote? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's been a difficult year for so many reasons, for, for so many people, you know, every, everyone's struggling. And I think I certainly have felt like it's been hard to focus on, mm. on what's important. And I think, again, with the passing of, of um, John Lewis, it, it really sort of 
gave me a sharp focus on on what what was important and what was important to him and I think with all the chatter and all the noise and everything that's coming at us I just wanted to kind of do something that was you know empowering but also very singular and and really just encourage people to use their voice and use their power you know it's the one thing we can do as citizens right now so it just felt like it was an important thing to be part of. Could you ever have imagined that you would be part of a civic engagement <laughs> movement? Um, no, actually, n- not at all. This this is not not how I sort of imagined my time in Atlanta was going to go. But obviously, twenty twenty, whole new world. But I think just. When I look at the life and the legacy of John Lewis, this was a man who got up every single day for over 60 years and and fought for what he believed in. You know, he said, if you see something wrong, do something. And I feel so compelled by that message. I'm so in awe and admiration of of you know anybody that goes out there and fights the good fight but 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 John Lewis was extraordinary because I, I'm not sure how you do get up every day and keep going but he did so mm. I feel like the least we could do is just keep on walking you know that that's really all he wanted us to do you know you walk and everyone will walk with you so this is a people-powered revolution and um if people want to join us then great if they want to tell their friends then great I just want people to know that you know we all have the power to do something let's talk about a night of good trouble which yeah not that it this is what draws me in but when I saw dinner and a movie (laughs) (laughs) and you know obviously and also because you know we are in this pandemic so Mm. how will you all be able to, to pull this off you know, it's um, it, it, there's definitely some logistics involved. Um, we are collaborating or co-hosting with the Atlanta Film Festival. Um, Chris Escobar, who I'm sure you've spoken to many times, um, is is organising the film festival this year, and he's been doing a lot of drive-in movies over the summer over at my dad's garage and over at the plaza and. Mm-hmm. We've got this incredible location over at the Pullman Yard in Kirkwood, which was a former rail yard owned by the Chicago Pullman Company, mm-hmm. um, responsible for really unionization of lots of African-American workers. So it's this incredible venue. It's vast. It's 27 acres. Mm-hmm. So talk about social distancing. So we have the space and the capacity to bring in over the course of the evenings safely 100 cars. And there'll be there'll be two screenings, one at 7.15, one at 9.15. Um, and we will have, you know, restaurant vendors, some of the best restaurateurs in Atlanta. We've got A-Arm who have just confirmed. We've got the Octopus Par. We've got Abby Singer. Um, they will be there. And we'll also have a poster art show curated by local artist Fabian Williams. So... Mm-hmm. We're really excited and because because of the space and if anyone's interested, they, they can go online, they can look at the Pullman Yard and what it looks like. We're able to accommodate guests safely. Now, if you're extra paranoid, you can stay in your car all night. You'll never have to leave or we'll bring the food to you. It's perfect. Otherwise, you know, there'll be bathrooms, you'll be allowed to use them and go to the art show, but it will be monitored by volunteers, everything will be spaced out, distant. So obviously, as this is sort of somewhat of a of a large event, we have to be extra diligent, but as um, the Atlanta Film Festival, they've created this template, so they know which protocols to have in place. But yeah, 
whatever happens, if, if you feel at all worried, just stay in your car, turn up the volume and enjoy the documentary. By the way, good calamari at eight arm. Oh, <laughs> just want to put that out. I can't there. wait to eat it again. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about beyond this event and voter registration. And obviously we know mm. November is a big election year and you'll be eligible to vote for the first time. I just got my voter registration card. It's on the fridge right now. And, you know, I get, I, you know, I did vote in the June the 9th primaries. And again, I, I, it was such a powerful feeling walking into that polling station mm. and feeling like I was part of something. And I, and I really want to kind of stress that to people that this means something this, this year, um, you know, 2020, it is the most important election, you know, whatever, whatever your politics, it's so important that we all participate because, you know, I think it will be, um, it will be, yeah, the most important election of our, of our lives really. So there's power in voting and, and it does make a difference. You know, John Lewis believed it. I believe it. Um, I know it's easy to be disillusioned and I understand all the reasons why, but I, I do believe that this is something we can do if we all just turn out. So that's really what I'll be doing, you know, beyond the 26, um, I'll be continuing to sort of message like, let's get out there, let's get out there early, let's vote by mail, let's just show up. Um, and so that's what I will be doing between now and, and November the 4th. And, and finally, this is a good way to end the conversation, Christine, because yeah. so much is made about, you know, with celebrities or athletes when they get involved in, in social justice issues or, yeah. you know, politics. And depending on whom you ask, you had a different answer. But let's be really clear, regardless, as you said, of your politics, folks like you and athletes and entertainers and celebs, you have influence. And so when you hear folks say, well, they just need to stick to their craft and not get involved. What's your thoughts, yeah. your thoughts on that? I mean, he, he, that's, here's my answer to that and my perspective for whatever it's worth. I've always been a person that would rather stand behind what I'm doing. So I moved to Atlanta because this is where I work and this is where my job is. I don't fly in from LA every week and, you know, and say my lines and go back. You know, I'm here, I'm a resident, I've got a Georgia license plate, I've got a Georgia driver's license. I'm committed and I stand with the people of Georgia, the people I work with are Georgians. I care about them, I care about their families. This is my community. So, you know, I do understand that criticism and I understand why it might seem a bit annoying when someone from Hollywood gets involved, but I am here. I did become a citizen. I, I believe in this stuff. You know, I put my money where my mouth is. So I hope that's sort of enough validation for people that might be thinking, "Ugh, here comes another actor, you know, grandstanding. But I, I, I hope I'm doing the work. I think I'm doing the work. And, you know, I, I believe in us. And I think Atlanta is is a phenomenal city and I think it deserves the change that it wants and I, and I just want to be part of it. I mean, because I am part of it. So um, it, it's important to me. I'm, I'm not a visitor, I'm, I'm a resident, so. And I'll tell you, I, I have to echo that. Atlanta embraced me when I moved here in 96, so I totally understand that. It's called A Night of Good Trouble. We'll have a link yep. to the event on our website. Christine Adams from the TV series Black Lightning. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts about the inspiration from John Lewis and much continued success. 
Thank you so much, Rose. It's been such a pleasure. Will you have me back on again just to talk about other stuff? Absolutely. And Oh, good. Okay. And, you know, I, I think I need to send your daughter a closer look mug or something. Oh, that, that would be like Christmas came early. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really appreciate it, Christine. Best of luck to you. We can't wait for Black Lightning to come back. Thank you so much, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.